the story of God's people in the early stages of 1 Samuel. We'll explore the lives of Hannah and Eli and Samuel, and this will take us up to, uh, to our Lenten season. Um, and if you're wondering why I'm up here uh, kicking off our new series, it's because uh, Pastor, ja- Pastor Chaz had a rough week. He's been in Hawaii this whole week, and so uh, here I am. <laughs> so today we're, we're going to look at Hannah's life, and in particular we're going to see uh, her life through places of pain and sorrow towards a place of freedom and peace. In her life, we're going to explore specifically three things, the sharpness of grief, the expression of grief, and then finally, the hope of grief. So if you turn with me to uh, 1 Samuel 1, uh, verses 1 through 20, you're welcome to follow along in your order of worship, or you can just listen as I read There was a certain man of Rithium Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohom, son of Elihu, son of Toha, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Paniah. And Paniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from the city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts, at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli and Hopni and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions uh, to Paniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave, to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, Hannah why, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk, and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose and Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give to him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk and put your wine away? But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. 
And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for, for him from the Lord. Well, this is God's word. It's given for our good. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, we come to you now as best as we are able with open hands and open ears and open hearts. And we ask that you would meet us, you meet us all in the places that we are. Meet us there and show us your son who is seated at your right hand praying for all of us right now. Show us his grace, Father, and change us by it. Amen. Well, in the very beginning of our text, we see that Hannah was one of two wives and that Hannah couldn't have children. The Lord had closed her womb and it... And as if that wasn't bad enough, we hear that her rival kept provoking her to irritate her. And this wasn't a one-time thing. It went on year after year. And whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her to the point of tears. And it says that she would not eat. Now, it's easy enough to understand the pain of this, right? The anguish, the turmoil of not being able to have children is devastating. And unfortunately, there are many of us who know the emotional pain of Hannah. And chances are, maybe you know someone close to you, or you have journeyed down this road, or maybe it's a path uh, you yourself have had to take, right? This is not some ancient pain (laughs) in some faraway place a long time ago. But I want us to look at one particular word in our text, and I think it helps capture in a fuller way what Hannah is going through in this ancient society. And the word word we see here in verse 6 is irritate. And unfortunately, it is translated in a way that doesn't help illuminate her experience. (laughs) It says that she wept, that she wouldn't eat, that she was provoked, that she was attacked, she was mocked, she was despised. And as a result, she was irritated. I mean, I don't know about you, but irritation, it sounds a little bit off, right? I mean, I, I can imagine being irritated when you can't find your car keys or when your child won't listen to you, not under the weight of sustained loss and even abuse, right? So what does this word convey? What is Hannah experiencing in this moment? Well, the word means actually to thunder or roar as in a storm. One scholar points out that this is the only time in the scriptures where this word is applied to someone's interior emotional life. Every other time it's used to denote an actual real storm, a thunder roaring like a, like a snow apocalypse or, or a, torna- a tornado, right? And why would this be applied to Hannah? Well, her inner life is roaring with agony. She felt in herself the waves and the wind of turmoil. She was torn up by anger, by despondency, as the sea is torn up by the stormy winds. I mean, this may seem like a silly question to ask, but, but, but why? Why did, why did she feel these things the way that she did? Well, it's helpful to understand ancient society and the realities that she faced. So think about this. The prospects, the success of every family was determined by the number of new children that were being born. 
your income, your status was a function of how many children you were able to have. The, the more children, the more hands uh, you had to work the field. The more, the more children the family produced, the greater capacity for wealth and status. Not only that, if you didn't want to literally starve to death when you got older, they have adult children to take care of you. There was no other way, right? And in order to have three or four children live to an adulthood, you had to have at least double that amount. And that's how bad the mortality rate was in this time. And it's not just true for families, but it was also true for nations, right? Economic and military security was wholly dependent on the growth and the number of new kids who were being born. And so what, so what does this mean? Bearing children was a life or death issue, literally, for a family. If that's true, it's easy to see why more and more women were, were heroes. They, they felt like heroes. They were treated like heroes when they could provide children, right? And, and women who couldn't bear any children at all, they felt completely useless, worthless, to their families, to their nation, and those around them. So we begin to understand and we feel the sort of self-contempt that they had for themselves or, or for, uh, the people or from the people around them. And for Hannah, this would have been a, a potent cocktail of futility and powerlessness in a society that put so much pressure on her womb to belong, to be a somebody, to have a purpose and significance. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, he puts it like this. He says, barrenness in any ancient text is the effective metaphor for hopelessness. It is a traumatic in every way. Without children, there was no foreseeable future for yourself, your family, or your people. Barrenness meant there was no human power to invent a future at all. And because of this, Hannah's life was full of roaring agony. Well, a couple years ago, I did an internship working as a chaplain in a hospital. And um, my mentor at the hospital at the time, he would often share a metaphor to capture the empathetic way we were asked to be with, with patients. He talked about patients being uh, in a boat Maybe you've heard something similar to this. And oftentimes that we are happy to kind of wave from them at the shore, right? They're in the boat, I'm on the shore, and I'm just kind of looking at them. I see what you're going through, and, and I'm over here, and you're over there, and God bless you, and I'll pray for you. But you're in the boat, and I'm on the shore. And then he said, sometimes the patient is in the boat, and we set out on our own boat. We paddle out to them, and we pull up beside them. And I'm here by your side, I, I'm, I'm with you, I'm present as you go through this hard thing. I see what you're going through, and maybe I even offer compassion or sympathy. And then my mentor, he mentioned this other, this, this last way. He talked about a patient in a boat, and we grab our boat, and we pull up beside them, and then we get into the boat with them. And being honest, I remember kind of being captured and compelled by this idea, but I had no idea what he was really talking about, right? I wasn't sure I had experienced that for myself or even kind of had examples of that, right? Well, in verse 8, Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Why, 
Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Now, Akena, he walks down the path that many of us do when our loved ones are in pain. We lock into fix-it mode, right? Of course, this is an easy place to be because he loves Hannah. His heart goes out to her, and so he sets off down this this path to do the thing that he has no power to do, right? To deliver her from the pain of barrenness. He wants to fix it because he loves her. But the dark secret about this is that when we try to fix those things that we can't, even with the best intentions, it puts us farther away from those who are in pain. He's not able to see her weeping, to to understand why she won't eat, to feel her sadness. He cannot, because he does not get close to her, to pull up beside her and have the courage to get into the boat of pain and to grieve with her. It's a scary place that she's in, and despite his love for her, he's not able to go there with her. We can feel the desperation of those questions, right? And the loneliness of Hannah when they meet her ears. I would imagine many of you know what this feels like. Maybe you've had someone say to you, or you have said this to yourself, when are we going to get over this? Or look, look at all the other good things in your life. Or maybe to get more religious about it, perhaps you've heard, you know, somebody quote this scripture, you know, God works for the good of those who love him. I mean, the reality, and our hearts know this, the reality is that, when, that we can often dismiss agony and heartache with religious platitudes. You see, when Elkanah says these things, despite his love for her, he is telling her that she is on another planet than, than where she than where she is living in that moment. And it is a place full of roaring agony, and there is no one to meet her, to meet her eyes with kindness, to stand and to hear her anger, to sit close to her, even if it's in silence, no matter how comfortable, uncomfortable that is. There is no one to weep with her. And the vicious reality is that when we are alone, it intensifies our pain. And having, and having seen and felt this sharpness of Hannah's grief, we begin then to see the expression of her grief. So notice in verse 9, it says, After they had eaten and, and drunk, Hannah rose. Now, big deal, right? <laughs> One of the years they had come to, Sh- to Shiloh, they came to the tabernacle, she stood up. And the author wants us to know in, that Hannah decided really to do something in this moment. She wasn't just thinking about or agonizing over what was happening, but she was going to do something about it. And in one year, she finally decided to get up. She rejected earthly hope that was doing nothing for her. And the endless waiting around trying to get pregnant to be something in that world, she rejected the offer that her husband made that he would be enough, that he would somehow fulfill and meet the desperate longings in her heart. Hannah finally stood up and went to God. And one commentator, he points out that, that it is narratively significant that though Paniah speaks to Hannah and Elkanah speaks to Hannah in verse 8, she never answers them. She only speaks to God. And because of this, this is what she has decided. She has decided to reject all other earthly diminished offers of hope around her and to take her pain to God. 
And so she does. And what does she do? She goes to him in prayer. And we should ask, what kind of prayer turns roaring agony of an inside into peace? Well, first of all, this prayer was emotionally raw. (laughs) We see the rawness of her prayer through Eli. He tells us that, that she looked drunk, right? And frankly, I wonder if, she was, uh, if he was used to having someone pray with such intensity, with such emotional honesty at the temple, right? But listen to what she says in verse 15. She says, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. I am pouring out my soul. In other words, She is taking the deepest part of her life, which has been stirring and roaring around inside of her. She is pouring it out, not to Eli, not to Elkanah, but to God. She prays her feelings. And what does this mean? It means to pour out your feelings into his reality. It means to saturate your deepest feelings with the reality of who God is. And here's the thing, I I think if we are honest, praying like this is not always welcome in our religious and social life, right? (laughs) I mean, can you imagine, maybe you've been around people with trauma, they seem off. People who are going through grief, they seem off, right? There's something going on there, and it's not always easy even to engage them in a social environment. But even praying, it's not always easy as well. And what do I mean? It's, it's, it's often far easier to deny or dismiss our feelings than to actually to feel them, right? Even with God, even in our prayers. And somehow we believe that we are better people when we profess strength and deny any kind of emotional impact from hardship or trauma or loneliness or loss. We can even believe that this is what God wants from us. We may even say to ourselves, good people are people who don't get mad at God, who, who don't get depressed or despondent at life. And why do we do this? Well, one of the reasons I, I think our prayers are, are too nice. They don't capture the deep and the darker places of our emotional life. It's because we don't believe the, in the lavish kindness of God to meet us. We can't admit to ourselves that I I may be an angry person even. I may may be despondent about my situation. I may even have a few choice words for God about the circumstance in my life. So maybe you have prayed prayers in hard times. But I wonder, do you find yourself editing those prayers, making them nice? Maybe if you're really honest, you are the sort of hoping God would take note of that niceness and the fortitude and he would grant you some kind of wish or hope. And we say to ourselves, let's be honest, he, he's God, right? What is the point in being angry or expressive? It won't change anything. It doesn't make anything better. But listen to these words from, from Job, actually. Job chapter 9. Job is furious, and he is expressing his anger to God. And in chapter 9, verse 16, he says, If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. (laughs) In other words, in the unlikely event that God actually answers me, he won't heed my voice. He won't really pay attention. 
to what I say, he will ignore it. I mean, do you hear his anger? <laughs> or more so, more so, do you hear his pain? Job wants God to pay attention to him, to, to his words, to his complaint. And just so you know, Job, Job's anger, it swells as the reader moves through each chapter. And you might even be thinking, just because Job is expressing some of these things, it doesn't mean that, that, that it's right. But there are countless examples in Scripture of people doing the wrong thing, right? But at the end of Job, chapter 42, God says, and he says this twice, he says that Job spoke rightly of him. God is saying that Job spoke rightly of him in his unedited speech, in his anger. Friends, God can handle your anger. He can and will receive you when you pour out your soul to him. It doesn't surprise him. (laughs) And let me ask you this. When you feel like God has let you down, when you feel abandoned by God, when you uh, allow yourself to feel angry with him just to feel it, then will you, like Job, like Hannah, have the courage to actually say to him what, what you're really feeling and thinking inside? And why is this important? Well, Hannah can certainly be angry with Peniah for her provocations, right? And, and rightly agonize over the societal shame that is, she is under. But ultimately, she knows that God is the reason she is barren. God is the one who could have just given her a child, and he did it. And perhaps worse than that, God is the one who has apparently been silent when year after year, Hannah's husband gave double portions for her. And by her tears, Hannah is allowing the the natural emotions of feeling forgotten by God to exist, to simply be in her prayers. There's no denial. There's no dismissing. She has the courage to give herself to God. And friends, I I just want to say it is beautiful and heartbreaking and full of grace. Hannah shows us the sharpness of grief. She shows us what it's like to express grief. And finally, She gives us the hope of grief. Hannah shows us the emotional rawness of her prayer by pouring out her feelings to God. We also see the theological realness in her prayer. I mean, these things things together, they're transformative for Hannah. What do I mean by this? Well, it's a deeply theological prayer, prayer. Look how it starts. She says, O Lord of hosts, she is expressing his exaltedness, his transcendence. She's stressing his immensity and power. O Lord of hosts, she says, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me. She has just pulled out one of the attributes, his high holiness, and now she's saying that the the broken heart of one obscure rural woman matters to God. The broken heart, the broken life of one little obscure woman matters to the God of the galaxies. (laughs) I mean, these realities couldn't seem farther apart from each other, right? But she believes that this is a God who is infinitely exalted in this world, who is absolutely transcendent, yet who is also absolutely eminent, who is close. He is the one who can get close, not, not her husband, certainly not her rival, right? And when she puts those two things together, when you put those things two together in your own life, it changes you. 
She's not just pouring out her soul. She is pouring her life into God's reality, into who he is. And the convergence of those realities, it, it begins to change her. Look at what she says. She says, remember me, do not forget me. And if you give me a son, I will give him to you. And no razor will ever be used on his head. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> if she only said, if you give me a son, then I'll give him to you. That could have been just pious rhetoric, right? It could have been religious bargaining. But once she says, no razor on his head, she puts her money where her mouth is. You see, you couldn't just decide in Israel to become a priest or a Levite or, or work full-time at the tabernacle because those were inherited jobs. You had to be in the priestly line. You had to be in the priestly families. You had to be of the tribe of Levi. But if you really wanted to give yourself in utter service, tucked away in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, there's a provision for the Nazarite. The Nazarite was someone who made an absolute vow of complete service to God. And the sign of the Nazarite was that you didn't drink any wine or beer. And secondly, you didn't cut your hair. Basically a moody student. Just kidding. <laughs> what Hannah is saying, what, it, what is Hannah saying? She's truly saying, if you give me a son, I will give him to you. Because he would have to live in the tabernacle. She wouldn't be able to raise him. So when her emotional and her theological reality converge, here's what happens. She says, all of my life, I have asked for a child for me, but now I ask for you. She says, Lord, give me a child for your sake. She's saying that, that she's not going to build her life on her child. She's not going to build her life on her husband. She's, she's, going, she's going to build her life on God and his mission. That is her passion. That is her hope. And she knows that if she would have had 10 sons before, she wouldn't have known this. But now, but now in, the, in that absence, she does. She knows that if, that if she has a son, it isn't just to be a mother, but to be a mother in mission with her son. This is the transforming convergence of her emotional and theological realness. Eli, he responds to her with a blessing, and, and the text says that she went away and ate. She has peace. Notice it's not at this point that God grants her a son, but she has peace not simply because God gave her what she asked for. In other words, she has peace before she has any certainty whether she's going to have a child at all. It's a peace cultivated in the emotional rawness and the theological realness of her prayer. You see, we often engage in one without the other. And it shows us that God designed them to work together. She has peace because of the full-bodied work of her grief and her faith. Her hope had shifted, and now she was free. Let me end by this. Isaac, Samson, Samuel, John the Baptist, they were all part of God's mission, and they were all born to barren women. God's greatest mission to deliver God's people from its ultimate enemy, sin and death, it came not just through a barren woman, but a virgin one. And this ultimate Savior, Mary's son, he too also went before the Lord, and Jesus, it says in the text, poured out his soul. 
But when he poured out his soul, Jesus wasn't heard. He experienced the actual and the full silence of the Father. He went into the darkness and death. He did this for Hannah, and he does this for you and for me. Jesus poured out his soul unto death so that when we pour out our heart, we pour it out for life. God doesn't just fly by death, but Jesus, he parks. He, he lingers in that place of death. We often talk about the horrors of Good Friday, right? And, and we quickly want to move to that place of resurrection, to, to Sunday. But Jesus lingered in the uncertainty of Saturday. And church, that is the place of our grief. It is the place that Hannah got up and entered into. It is the place where our roaring agony, it meets our faith. And Hannah and Jesus, they show us that we have to go through it, not around it. But going through it, it is the path to peace and the freedom and life. Let me pray. Father, give us the courage to be like Hannah, to get up from our places of pain and sorrow and to pour out ourselves to you. And Father, we are thankful that you receive us in those honest and roaring places of grief and pain. Thank you, God, that it is in those real places that you meet us with your grace and meet those of us in these hard places this morning, those, those who feel the roar in our hearts now and those of us that push that down and away. Meet us with your kindness that we may have peace. We are grateful that it is not a cheap peace, but one that has been secured by the roaring agony of the cross and the reality of the resurrection. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.